Let me pray for us as we get started here. Lord Jesus, I thank you that in your faithful life and death and resurrection, you defeated death on our behalf. Thank you for the hope that we have to look forward to in you. We pray that you would help us to live out of that hope as we go from this place. Amen. All right, so um, the first, as you guys know, the first sermon in the series was devoted entirely to this idea of Paul's inaugurated eschatology, this idea that in the resurrection of Jesus, in the outpouring of the Spirit, the age to come had been drawn back into the present so that the present evil age and the age to come overlap. We live between the times so that the age to come is both now in some senses and also not yet in some senses. And so we've seen that come up in various ways through the passages that we've looked at, but it comes up explicitly and in force in the passage that we are looking at today. So what Paul has just done is come off of describing how our human frailty, our limitations, our weaknesses, all help to shift the focus off of ourselves and onto God and God's power working in us. And the climax of this is, is, will be seen when God works the same great power that he worked in Jesus when he raised him from the dead, when he works that in us. Paul trusts that God will indeed do this. And what he says at the end of what we looked at last week is, we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. And so it's with that thought that he launches in to the passage we're reading today. So here's what he says. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened. Because we do not want to be unclothed, but further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So what we see here is Paul's hope for God's coming ultimate act of power in raising us from the dead. Both the not yet and the now are at play in, in this part of the passage. And Paul expresses these two things in a set of contrasts that he sets up. So on one hand, our current reality in the present evil age, which is marked by death, 
is that we are wasting away, he says. The language of outwardly is what describes the visible nature of this reality, okay? This is what we're familiar with. This is what we can see. We can see ourselves wasting away. We can see the decay around us. But this outward and seen reality is contrasted with something that is unseen, something that's happening in us. Paul describes it as inward. And that inward reality is a renewing. It's a being made new. And that's what belongs to the resurrection, new creation thought world of the age to come. This renewal, this resurrection renewal, in its fullness, okay, belongs to the age to come. But nonetheless, it's at work right now, Paul says. Okay, even if we can't see it, even if it's unseen. It's like our current bodies are a seed that's dying in the ground so that new life can burst forth from it. So there's this outward wasting away versus this inward being renewed. Okay? And similarly, the present evil age is marked by troubles, by trials. A lot of that has to do with what Paul has described his own ministry has encountered. But those things are coming to an end. Okay? Like all things associated with the present evil age that we've talked about over these last few weeks. The old covenant, slavery to the law, the body of sin, the wisdom and the rulers of this age, even death itself. All those things are coming to an end. And the troubles that we encounter in this present age are temporary. In contrast to that, the new covenant and the glory that accompanies it, as we've discussed, that lasts. That is not temporary. That's eternal. And Paul says that the troubles we are experiencing are actually bring about this eternal glory in us. When, when the NIV says that our momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory, the word translating as achieving there means like to prepare, to produce something, okay, to work it out. It's what Paul says in Philippians when he says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. It's what he says in Romans 5 when he says that our troubles, that same word, our trials, are producing in us perseverance and perseverance character and character hope, the kind of hope that Paul is on about today. And so the glory that these troubles produce in us is the same glory that we talked about in chapter 3. As, as we behold Jesus through the Spirit, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Okay? When we participate in the death of Jesus, that leads to participation in his life. In our momentary troubles, we're seeing produced in us that eternal glory, okay? While we do not yet see it in its fullness, it is at work. It is being produced now. Paul also talks, another contrast is this, this distinction between the earthly tent, which is our mortal body, and that's something that can be destroyed. You contrast that with a heavenly dwelling or house. Now, some people might be tempted to think that this is a reference to something non-physical or non-material. And in the wake of its engagement with Hellenistic philosophy, a lot of the early Christian fathers kind of took this direction. They almost began to think of the contrast between heaven and earth as a contrast between like the immortal, immaterial soul and the mortal physical body. And a similar 
you know, way of thinking, we can be tempted to look at things in a similar way in another passage that Paul writes about along similar lines here in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is the most extended treatment of the resurrection in the New Testament. And there's a lot of things that he says there that are similar to what we're reading today. And so what we can do is we can kind of compare these two passages and look carefully at what Paul is saying and hopefully get at what he's actually saying rather than some of the misunderstandings that have kind of come up historically. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 35, he says, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you saw, sorry, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but a naked seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed, he gives its own kind of body. All right, so that's where that, that seed image that I mentioned before comes from. Okay, our current mortal bodies are like what Paul calls a naked seed, okay, a bare seed. That are, they're planted in the ground. And what's important to recognize here is that there's an important continuity and discontinuity between our current bodies and our resurrected ones. Okay? So the discontinuity is not that one is material and that another is non-material. The discontinuity is that the two physical bodies are fit for different kinds of existence. And so what Paul goes on to do is list different types of bodies that have different kinds of glory, that same term that we've been looking at. And he lists people, animals, birds, and fish. He lists the sun, moon, and stars as having different kinds of glory. And it's worth bringing up one of the Old Testament texts that we talked about in that first Sunday. Um, you may recall that there's actually only one Old Testament text that explicitly refers to resurrection. And we find that in Daniel 12. And so what Paul, or what, what, what is said there is, this is Daniel 12, 1 and 2, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. All right, so along these lines, Paul says that the, the difference in glory between heavenly and earthly bodies will also distinguish our mortal from our resurrection bodies. So he kind of continues that in, in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, there are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the glory of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of glory, the moon another, and the stars another. And star differs from star in glory. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So what is a spiritual body? 
However we come to understand that as we study Paul in particular, what's essential to say right up front is, is that it is clearly still a body, a soma. And I think Gordon Fee's explanation here is really helpful in understanding what Paul means with this language of, of spiritual. He says, in this case, therefore, as the next analogy will make clear, these terms do not describe the stuff or the composition of the body. Rather, they describe one body in terms of its essential characteristics as earthly on one hand, and therefore belonging to the life of the present age, and as heavenly on the other, and therefore belonging to the life of the spirit in the age to come. It is spiritual, not in the sense of immaterial. Okay, that's not a Christian concept. That's a, a Greek philosophy concept. Not in the sense of immaterial, but of supernatural. The transformed body, therefore, is not composed of something called spirit. It is a body adapted to the eschatological existence that is under the ultimate domination of the Holy Spirit. Okay, thus for Paul, to be truly pneumaticos, right, spiritual, is to bear the likeness of Christ in a transformed body fitted for the new age. In another book, he puts it slightly differently. He says it's a body that's supernaturally fitted for the life of the spirit, totally unhindered by any of its present weakness. And so that's what brings us to the part in 1 Corinthians 15 that sounds most similar, almost identical. It mirrors the passage in 2 Corinthians 5 that we're looking at today. Paul says, meanwhile, or sorry, and so in 2 Corinthians 5, we've already read this, but he said, meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So in 1 Corinthians 15, the parallel to this, he says, for the perishable must clothe itself, clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? So it's here where it most clearly comes out that Paul, with the word spiritual, does not mean disembodied or something like that. It's not immaterial, okay? What Paul presents us with is actually three different states. There is our current mortal existence, our perishable bodies. Then there's this disembodied existence. And then there's a more embodied existence. So currently, we're clothed in this present physical mortal body. Um, he calls that this tent, this tent that we're clothed in, right? But, and, and this body is dying. And so what do we hope for? Paul says it's not a disembodied existence, okay, like the Gnostics or the Greeks, like Plato. It's not a disembodied existence. It's not to be unclothed. It's not to be immaterial. It's not to be found naked, but rather it's for a more embodied existence, to be further clothed. 
The image appears to be of putting on our heavenly bodies over the top of our present physical mortal bodies. So our present physical bodies will be further clothed with our heavenly immortal ones at the resurrection. And that is the ultimate hope that we have to look forward to as Christians. A renewed body in a renewed heaven and earth. So it's not a permanently disembodied existence of the soul off in this other place called heaven. In the Bible, heaven and earth come together. That's where this whole thing is moving. I like what N.T. Wright says here. He says, um, he's, he's referring to this idea that we have a building from God, right? An eternal house in the heavens, not built by human hands. He says, if I assure my guests that there is champagne for them in the fridge, I'm not suggesting that we all need to get into the fridge if we're to have a party. The future body, the non-corruptible and hence eternal house, is at present in the heavens as opposed to on earth. But it will not stay there. For us to put it on top of our present house will, will require that it be brought from heaven. Heaven and earth come together. Okay, so Paul does not want to be unclothed or found naked in some disembodied existence, but further clothed with his heavenly body. And that theology, I think, holds two things together that are really important for us to hold together. On one hand, okay, it acknowledges the suffering that we all experience in these perishable bodies. All of us can sympathize with the groaning that Paul describes here. And if you're lucky enough to think, well, I'm not, I don't know what he's talking about, I'm not groaning, well, all you have to do is wait for a couple years. Paul fully acknowledges the mortality, the pain, and the decay that we see all around us. Those realities are not ignored. Okay? He expresses this universal longing for healing and things be made right. But at the same time, while he acknowledges those things, while he acknowledges what's wrong with our physical mortal bodies, okay, he also acknowledges the goodness of our physical bodies. Yes, it is mortal. Yes, it is subject to decay. Yes, it is suffering. Okay? But our physical selves are created by God as good. They're a fundamental part of who we are. And despite the brokenness that we experience, there is good seed here that is blessed and will endure. And what we look to in resurrection is the created good aspects of our physical bodies being supplemented with glorious, immortal, imperishable heavenly bodies. The healing transformation that is coming preserves that goodness rather than completely annihilating it. Okay, so we'll be able to look at each other and say, I know you. So Paul's ultimate hope, his ultimate longing is for this transformed, glorified, immortal, heavenly, real body. It's like what we see in Jesus' body at the resurrection. On one hand, his body is different. Okay, it doesn't, it's not bound by the same rules, almost, that our physical bodies are. It's, it's, it's changed enough that when people see Jesus, they don't always recognize him immediately. But at the same time, he still eats, cooks breakfast. Okay, he's 
he still has the, the wounds in his hands and in his side. Okay, it's a real body. There's continuity with his former body, but it has also been transformed. And so Paul follows this with what's probably my favorite image of resurrection life in the age to come. He, he references Isaiah 25, which was what was read in our call to worship this morning. It talks about our mortality being swallowed up by life. On this mountain, it said, he will destroy the shroud. It's like a, a funeral shroud. He will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. And so we can kind of compare this with what Paul has said in the passages that we read this morning. One day, death, the great swallower, will itself be swallowed up. Our mortality will be swallowed up by life. And so while that eschatological reality broke in in the resurrection of Jesus, it's, it is for us what still remains as the ultimate not yet. Okay, but that's where the Spirit comes in. And so Paul continues. He says, Now the one who has fashioned us for this, and he's talking about being clothed with our heavenly dwelling, he's talking about our mortality being swallowed up by life, the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. All right, so resurrection and spirit, Pentecost and Easter, those two realities which bound Eastertide, the season that we're in right now, are the supreme sign of the eschaton. That's why Gordon Fee calls the Holy Spirit the eschatological spirit. The spirit living in us is the deposit. It's the guarantee that what God has begun in Jesus will be completed in us. Okay, these eschatological, eschatological realities are coming. It's the guarantee of our hope, like a, like a down payment. Now, having said that, after everything that we've just said about bodies, right, physical bodies, resurrection, the continuity there, what Paul says here has the, like the potential to introduce some confusion. Because he talks about being away from the body. This is one of the few places in the New Testament where we hear about this, this intermediate state between our death and our resurrection. And in this, in this sense, where we kind of understand wh whoever it is that we are separately from our bodies in some sense. But in the light of the rest of the New Testament teaching, this should be understood as a temporary interim as we await resurrection. There's a peace there, okay? Paul says that, he'd rather, that he prefers that existence to the suffering he currently experiences. And he says the same thing in other passages where he, where he talks about this. But that's not our ultimate hope. Okay, so as Wright says, if this disembodied state is referred to as life after death, 
our ultimate hope is life after, life after death. Okay, it's, it's our embodied participation in new creation where heaven and earth have come together in a transformational way. So the resurrection of Jesus gives us hope that our own resurrection is coming as well. The Spirit reinforces that hope as we get a taste now of the reality that will be brought about fully on that final day. But with that hope comes responsibility. All of this comes from God, and we ought to live lives that are pleasing to God in grateful anticipation of what he is bringing about. So that brings us to our last verse here where he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So resurrection is coming, and with it comes judgment. And often, judgment is thought of in very negative terms, right? When we hear someone say, it's judgment day, our typical response isn't like, yay, right? Um, I like what N.T. Wright says here as well. He says, the word judgment carries negative overtones for a good many people in our liberal and post-liberal world. We need to remind ourselves that throughout the Bible, not least in the Psalms, God's coming judgment is a good thing, something to be celebrated, longed for, yearned over. It causes people to shout for joy and the trees of the field to clap their hands. In a world of systematic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, and oppression, the thought that there might come a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor and weak are given their due is the best news there can be. Faced with a world in rebellion, a world full of exploitation and wickedness, a good God must be a God of judgment. And we don't have to spend too much time thinking about the stuff that goes on in our world to realize this, to say, thank God there is a coming judgment. Nonetheless, we all know that while we have all been victims of the evil in the world, we also know that we've all contributed, it, contributed to it in some respect. And so while we should have something to celebrate here, shouldn't we also be nervous? So over the next three sermons, we're going to continue our journey through this part of 2 Corinthians. But we're going to walk through three different models of the atonement that I think teach us how to wrestle with that question. So stay tuned. For now, let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope that you've given us to look forward to. We pray that you would help us to spread your, your, the, the, the good news of your victory to those that we encounter in ways that they can understand it. And we pray that we would be a sign of this new creation reality to the world around us. Amen.